Sections 130 to 144 of Berkeley's Treatise. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Sections 130 to 144 of A Treatise Concerning the Principles of Human Knowledge, Part 1, by George Berkeley. Of late the speculations about infinities have run so high, and grown to such strange notions, as have occasioned no small scruples of disputes among the geometers of the present age. Some there are of great note, who, not content with holding that less finite lines may be divided into an infinite number of parts, do yet farther maintain that each of those infinitesimals is itself subdivisible into an infinity of other parts, or infinitesimals of a second order, and so on ad infinitum. These, I say, assert there are infinitesimals of infinitesimals of infinitesimals, etc., without ever coming to an end, so that according to them an inch does not barely contain an infinite number of parts, but an infinity of an infinity of an infinity, ad infinitum, of parts. Others there will be who hold all orders of infinitesimals below the first to be nothing at all, thinking it, with good reason, absurd to imagine there is any positive quantity or part of extension which, though multiplied infinitely, can never equal the smallest given extension. And yet, on the other hand, it seems no less absurd to think the square, cube, or other power of a positive real root should itself be nothing at all, which they who hold infinitesimals of the first order, denying all of the subsequent orders, are obliged to maintain. Have we not, therefore, reason to conclude they are both in the wrong, and that there is, in effect, no such thing as parts infinitely small, or an infinite number of parts contained in any finite quantity. But you will say that if this doctrine obtains it will follow, the very foundations of geometry are destroyed, and those great men who have raised that science to so astonishing a height have been all the while building a castle in the air. To this it may be replied that whatever is useful in geometry, and promotes the benefit of human life, does still remain firm and unshaken on our principles, that science considered as practical will rather receive advantage than any prejudice from what has been said. But to set this in a due light may be the proper business of another place. For the rest, though it should follow that some of the more intricate and subtle parts of speculative mathematics may be paired off without any prejudice to truth, yet I do not see what damage will be thence derived to mankind. On the contrary, I think it were highly to be wished that men of great abilities and obstinate application would draw off their thoughts from those amusements, and employ them in the study of such things as lie nearer the concerns of life, or have a more direct influence on the manners. It is be said that several theorems undoubtedly true are discovered by methods in which infinitesimals are made use of, which could never have been if their existence included a contradiction in it. I answer, that upon a thorough examination it will not be found that in any instance it is necessary to make use of, or conceive, infinitesimal parts of finite lines, or even quantities less than the minimum sensible. Nay, it will be evident that this is never done, it being impossible. By what we have premised, it is plain that very numerous and important errors have taken their rise from those false principles which were impugned in the foregoing parts of this treatise and the opposites of those erroneous tenets, at the same time, appear to be most fruitful principles, 
from whence do flow innumerable consequences highly advantageous to true philosophy, as well as to religion. Particularly matter, or the absolute existence of corporeal objects, hath been shown to be that wherein the most avowed and pernicious of enemies of all knowledge, whether human or divine, have ever placed their chief strength and confidence. And surely, if by distinguishing the real existence of unthinkable things from their being perceived, and allowing them a subsistence of their own out of the minds of spirits, no one thing is explained in nature, but, on the contrary, a great many inexplicable difficulties arise. If the supposition of matter is barely precarious, as not being grounded on so much as one single reason, if its consequences cannot endure the light of examination and free inquiry, but screen themselves under the dark and general pretense of infinites being incomprehensible, if withal the removal of this matter be not attended with the least evil consequence, if it be not even missed in the world, but everything is well, nay, much easier conceived without it, if, lastly, both sceptics and atheists are forever silenced upon supposing only spirits and ideas, and this scheme of things is perfectly agreeable both to reason and religion, methinks we may expect it should be admitted and firmly embraced, though it were proposed only as an hypothesis, and the existence of matter had been allowed possible, which yet I think we have evidently demonstrated that it is not. True it is that, in consequence of the foregoing principles, several disputes and speculations which are esteemed no mean parts of learning are rejected as useless. But how great a prejudice soever against our notions this may give to those who have already been deeply engaged, and make large advances in studies of that nature, yet by others we hope it will not be thought any just ground of dislike to the principles and tenets herein laid down, that they abridge the labour of study, and make human sciences far more clear, compendious, and attainable than they were before. Having dispatched what we intended to say concerning the knowledge of ideas, the method we propose leads us in the next place to treat of spirits, with regard to which, perhaps, human knowledge is not so deficient as is vulgarly imagined. The great reason that is assigned for our being thought ignorant of the nature of spirits is not our having an idea of it. But surely it ought not to be looked on as a defect in a human understanding that it does not perceive the idea of spirit, if it is manifestly impossible there should be any idea. And this, if I mistake not, has been demonstrated in section 27, to which I shall here add that a spirit has been shown to be the only substance or support wherein unthinkable beings or ideas can exist, but that this substance which supports or perceives ideas should itself be an idea or like an idea, is evidently absurd. It will perhaps be said that we want a sense, as some have imagined, proper to know substances withal, which, if we had, we might know our own soul as we do a triangle. To this I answer, that in case we had a new sense bestowed upon us, we could only receive thereby some new sensations or ideas of sense. But I believe nobody will say that what he means by the terms soul and substance is only some particular sort of idea or sensation. We may therefore infer that, all things duly considered, it is not more reasonable to think our faculties defective, in that they do not furnish us with an idea of spirit, or active thinking substance, than it would be if we should blame them for not being able to comprehend a round square. From the opinion that spirits are to be known after the manner of an idea or sensation, 
have risen many absurd and heterodox tenets, and much scepticism about the nature of the soul. It is even probable that this opinion may have produced a doubt in some whether they had any soul at all distinct from their body, since upon inquiry they could not find they had an idea of it. That an idea which is inactive, and the existence whereof consists in being perceived, should be the image or likeness of an agent subsisting by itself, seems to need no other refutation than barely attending to what is meant by those words. But perhaps you will say that though an idea cannot resemble a spirit in its thinking, acting, or subsisting by itself, yet it may in some other respects. And it is not necessary that an idea or image be in all respects like the original. I answer, if it does not in those mentioned, it is impossible it should represent it in any other thing. Do but leave out the power of willing, thinking, and perceiving ideas, and there remains nothing else wherein the idea can be like a spirit. For, by the word spirit, we mean only that which thinks, wills, and perceives. This and this alone constitutes the signification of the term. If, therefore, it is impossible that any degree of those powers should be represented in an idea, it is evident there can be no idea of a spirit. But it will be objected that, if there is no idea signified by the terms soul, spirit, and substance, they are wholly insignificant, or have no meaning in them. I answer, those words do mean or signify a real thing, which is neither an idea nor like an idea, but that which perceives ideas, and wills and reasons about them. What I am myself, that which I denote by the term I, is the same with what is meant by soul or spiritual substance. If it be said that this is only quarrelling at a word, and that, since the immediately significations of other names are by common consent called ideas, no reason can be assigned why that which is signified by the name spirit or soul may not partake in the same appellation. I answer, all the unthinking objects of the mind agree in that they are entirely passive, and their existence consists only in being perceived, whereas a soul or spirit is an active being, whose existence consists not in being perceived, but in perceiving ideas and thinking. It is therefore necessary, in order to prevent equivocation and confounding natures perfectly disagreeing and unlike, that we distinguish between spirits and idea. See section 27. In a large sense, indeed, we may be said to have an idea, or rather a notion of spirit. That is, we understand the meaning of the word. Otherwise, we could not affirm or deny anything of it. Moreover, as we conceive the ideas that are in the minds of other spirits by means of our own, which we suppose to be resemblances of them, so we know other spirits by means of our own soul, which in that sense is the image or idea of them, it having a like respect to other spirits that blueness or heat by me perceived has to those ideas perceived by another. It must not be supposed that they who assert the natural immortality of the soul are of opinion that it is absolutely incapable of annihilation, even by the infinite power of the Creator, who first gave it being, but only that it is not liable to be broken or dissolved by the ordinary laws of nature or motion. They, indeed, who hold the soul of a man to be only a thin vital flame, or system of animal spirits, make it perishable and corruptible as the body, since there is nothing more easily dissipated than such a being, which it is naturally impossible should survive the ruin of the tabernacle wherein it is enclosed. And this notion has been greedily embraced and cherished by the worst part of mankind, 
as the most effectual antidote against all impressions of virtue and religion. But it has been made evident that bodies, of what frame or texture soever, are barely passive ideas in the mind, which is more distant and heterogeneous from them than light is from darkness. We have shown that the soul is indivisible, incorporeal, unextended, and it is consequently incorruptible. Nothing can be plainer than that the motions, changes, decays, and dissolutions which we hourly see befall natural bodies, and which is what we mean by the course of nature, cannot possibly affect an active, simple, uncompounded substance. Such a being, therefore, is indissoluble by the force of nature. That is to say, the soul of man is naturally immortal. After what has been said, it is, I suppose, plain that our souls are not to be known in the same manner as senseless, inactive objects, or by way of an idea. Spirits and ideas are things so wholly different, that when we say they exist, they are known, or the like, these words must not be thought to signify anything common to both natures. There is nothing alike or common in them, and to expect that by any multiplication or enlargement of our faculties we may be enabled to know a spirit as we do a triangle, seems absurd as if we should hope to see a sound. This is inculcated because I imagine it may be of moment towards clearing several important questions, and preventing some very dangerous errors concerning the nature of the soul. We may not, I think, strictly be said to have an idea of an active being, or of an action, although we may be said to have a notion of them. I have some knowledge or notion of my mind, and its acts about ideas, inasmuch as I know or understand what is meant by these words. What I know, that I have some notion of, I will not say that the terms idea and notion may not be used convertibly, if the world will have it so, but yet it conduceth to clearness and propriety that we distinguish things very different by different names. It is also to be remarked that, all relations including an act of the mind, we cannot so properly be said to have an idea, but rather a notion of the relations and habitudes between things. But if in the modern way the word idea is extended to spirits, and relations, and acts, this is, after all, an affair of verbal concern. It will not be amiss to add that the doctrines of abstract ideas has had no small share in rendering those sciences intricate and obscure, which are particularly conversant about spiritual things, Men have imagined they could frame abstract notions of the powers and acts of the mind, and consider them prescended as well from the mind or spirit itself, as from their respective objects and effects. Hence a great number of dark and ambiguous terms, presumed to stand for abstract notions, have been introduced into metaphysics and morality, and from these have grown infinite distraction and disputes amongst the learned." but nothing seems more to have contributed towards engaging men in controversies and mistakes with regard to the nature and operations of the mind than the being used to speak of those things in terms borrowed from sensible ideas. For example, the will is termed the motion of the soul. This infuses a belief that the mind of man is as a ball in motion, impelled and determined by the objects of sense, as necessarily as that is by the stroke of a racket." Hence arise endless scruples and errors of dangerous consequence in morality, all which, I doubt not, may be cleared, and truth appear plain, uniform, and consistent, could but philosophers be prevailed on to retire into themselves, and attentively consider their own meaning. End of sections 130 to 144